Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Good morning. morning. All right. Hey, listen, so um, we're going to continue through um, Exodus, but we're going to come to a passage that, honestly, you read the chapter, and there's probably 35 sermons that you can take out of these these verses. So if I don't touch on the verse or teach about the verse that you think, hey, you should have taught about that one, we'll put you on the rotation, okay? I'm going to try to make it through. I've been losing my voice, so I'm going to try my best to get it through. We got a lot to cover, so we're going to dig right into it. So grab your Bible, and we're going to read um, Exodus chapter 33. We're going to read all through the whole chapter, and then we're going to break it down and see if there's something that we can um, squeeze out of it and apply to our life. So look at Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land that I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, and I, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. I just, I just love that line. I, I can't go. I may kill you. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn. No one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. And if I were to go with you for even a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I'll decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances of their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshiped, each at the entrance of their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not told me whom you would send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked, because I have I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. 
I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom, I've, on whom I have had passion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, um, so many things in that passage is just flooded with truth, things that we can apply. So God, we're just gonna come this morning and we're gonna dive into your word. We just ask that you would teach through me. Lord, if um, there's something that you wanna say, you wanna change in the message, you have the authority to do that. Father, uh, we're just here. We just wanna learn from you. So God, I pray that you teach us from your word today. It's your name we pray, amen. When I read this passage, it seems like God is a parent. And it seems like God looks at his, his kids and says, listen, I don't know if your parents have said this. My parents have said it many times. I've had it up to here with you. Have you had that? I've had it up to here. I remember one instance, I'm the youngest of five and we would get into a lot of stuff. So me and my brother were about 14 months older. He's my closest in age. We were out playing cowboys and Indians and I had a bow and arrow set and he was running around with a BB gun and he was shooting at me with a BB gun and I was dodging it. So I took my arrow and I shot at him and I miscalculated, hit him right in the thigh. The arrow went in his thigh and it stuck. And of course I was scared to death. I was like, I just killed my brother. I just killed him, what am I gonna do? He goes, of course, running to mom and mom says, I don't know what I'm gonna do with y'all. I'm had it up to here. Like I'm done with y'all. Well, a couple hours later, I've shared this story before because I'm very proud of it. At age eight, I entered into the astronaut program. I went into astronaut training. We used it. Listen, I don't recommend this. If you're a child of influence, do not do this. We would get in the dryer and we would do astronaut training in the dryer. <laughs> so we would take turns getting in the dryer and we would just hit the button and we would flip really quick, you know? My brother, who just got stabbed with a arrow, thought, hey, hey, hey Daryl, um, astronauts travel at night and we, we probably need to close the door of the dryer door and I'll seal it in just like they do for real astronauts and then, then I'll turn it on real quick. Well, he turns it on and leaves. And my mom, she said, all I heard was, blah, 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 blah. I was trying to yell for help and I was just tumbling, tumbling over and over. My mom gets it out and she says, I've had it up to here with you. So we went from here to here. So my brother Glenn goes, hey, it's not even bedtime. We may make it up to here before long. <laughs> my dad steps in. He thought it was funny. He liked our humor, but uh, he didn't like how we offended our mom. So the hammer came down on us. But I feel like that's how God does. He's looking at him and going, dudes, you're frustrating the stew out of me and I've had it up to here with you. So I think we need to go back and, and kind of see what was the frustration. Jeremy talked about it last week. So let, flip back a couple pages. Look at, look at Exodus chapter 32. I just want to touch back on this, what it caused this tension. Exodus chapter two, verse one. It says, when, Moses saw, when, the, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down the mountain, they gathered, gathered around Aaron and said, come make us a God's who will go before us. 
For this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and he made, it, he made into it an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fastening it with a t- tool. Then he said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early, sacrificed burnt offerings, presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down and eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So this is what ticked God off. Here's Moses coming down the mountains with the commandments. Now, this is before the people heard of the, the, the commandments. What is the first commandment? Does anybody know? What is the first commandment? Have no other gods before me. Here they come, Moses coming down the mountain and the people are actually doing the first commandment and breaking it. So there's some tension between God and his people. And the tension is real. And the tension is, is, creates a situation where God is frustrated of the disobedience of his people. And we see how Aaron steps in and he creates this calf and he stands before him and he says, hey guys, listen, thanks for the calf. We're gonna build an altar, which is reserved for the Lord. And we're gonna have burnt offerings, which is reserved for the Lord. And we're gonna have fellowship offerings, which is reserved for the Lord. And what they were doing, they were combining the little G God with the big G God celebration. And that ticked God off. You can't do that. You can't take something that God created and morph it with something that is perverse. It's not right. So we look at their, their, their behavior and we think, gosh, what a bunch of knuckleheads. Well, let me list a couple things that we do. They took gold, which is beautiful, and they turned it into a calf, something perverse. Our society has taken a rainbow, which is beautiful, and turn it into a symbol for a movement. We've taken the sanctity of marriage and we view it as archaic. We take the role and title of dad and mom and now that's under debate. We take sex from God's design and we say, I can do whatever I want to, whenever I want to, and with whomever I want to. We take life and birth and now it's an option. We take sports, which is great, but we turn it into our child's God and we have taught them to forego everything for it. We take money to be used for God's purposes and to bless people and we hoard it and we stack it away. We wanna build our 401ks with it. By the way, how's that going? Mine's not going so well. So there's a stark difference between what the Lord has designed and what the world tells us. It's a big difference. And we're gonna see when we get into Exodus chapter 33 that I feel like there's two perspectives. There's the Egypt perspective and there's the promised land perspective. So let's look at it together. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 33. Now that we kind of see the tension, what's going on? Look at 33 verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place. 
So we're gonna leave this place that you guys have, were disobedient in. You and the people you brought up out of Egypt and go to the land of promise on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I'll give it to your descendants. I love the picture of the mercy of God. The God looks at him and says, listen, guys, you are so disobedient, but I made a promise and I'm gonna fulfill it. You might not be faithful, but I'm faithful. You might not be, have mercy, but I'm merciful because I could destroy you right now, but I'm deciding not to. You got a place to go. You know, when I was younger, when I would read stuff like this, I would hear the promised land. I would associate that with heaven. And I would think, okay, the promised land is a picture of heaven. And God made us a promise and it's, and it's a beautiful place and we're gonna be able to get there. But what I learned is this, don't ever associate the promised land here with heaven for this purpose, for this reason. I don't have to fight for heaven. I don't have to fight for it. There's not enemies in my way for me to get there because it's through Jesus's victory that I have full access to heaven. So you can't, pro, you can't compare the promised land with the heaven here. That's not a good illustration. But the better illustration is this, where we have the benefit of being in the presence of God and experiencing something that nothing can promise us. And that's this, rest. That the promised land provides rest. Now, look at this graphic up here. I want you to look at this map. Oh, I'm sorry. Look at the description here. So there's this description. There's this word in Hebrew that describes what Egypt is. It's called merit, okay? This is what it means. Straits, narrow, confined, blockage, tight spot, narrow places, constricting place. That's what the Hebrews, that's how they describe the word Egypt, okay? It's kind of crazy. Now, how does it describe the land of Canaan? Fertile, exceptional, and wide. Two very different things. Here's a picture. Look at, the, look at this picture. Look at the Egyptian domain compared to the land of Canaan. Now, let me take you back to the, the description. Egypt was described as being narrow, being confined, being tight. The land of Canaan described as being wide and fertile. You look at the picture, it doesn't reflect that. So that, to me, I look at it and go, okay, there's two different distinct domains. There's the wide and then there's the narrow. When I was growing up, I don't know if you've felt this way before, you, you look at the life of Jesus and you go, man, I wanna enter into the life of Jesus. But man, as a teenager, I thought, gosh, he is so restricting. I can't do this. I can't do this. There's a lot of rules. I gotta follow this. I gotta do this. And I looked at it as, as a constraint. But as I grew in my maturity, where I was living in Egypt thinking I had all access to do everything, but in fact, I was tied Jesus says, I want you to come to the land of Canaan where it's open, where it's free. The relationship with Jesus provides freedom and it provides rest. There's nothing in this world that will give you rest, true rest. It's only Jesus. So we have this, these people that are saying, okay, man, God, you did a great job getting us out of Egypt, but man, our dude, Moses, I don't know where he went, so we're gonna build a calf because we just kind of feel lost and we need to give praise to something that got us out of Egypt, but yet what they were doing eternally is stepping back into the bondage of Egypt. 
God says, listen, I'm tired of Egypt. I want to get you to the land of Canaan. I want you to get to your free, fertile, wide open spot that's full of rest. So let me just ask you something. I'm going to go off script. I would venture to say that most of us in this room are living in Egypt. We feel like we're full of bondage. Something just has me. My heart is heavy. I'm, I'm disinterested in this whole Jesus thing. Maybe you came today just because your spouse made you come. And you're not really sure why you even wanted to be here. Because what's this whole Jesus life about? I would venture to say that most of us in this room, either we're in it or we are coming out of it or we're gonna go into it, that we just enjoy being enslaved. We enjoy it. We like it. Let let, let me be so bold to say this. I think there's proof in what we feed ourselves. You're gonna go home today and you're gonna feed yourself on something. Some of you are gonna, maybe even right now, you're checking the website Fox News, CNN, you're checking ESPN. You're looking for things that will will kind of want to make you feel fulfilled, to get you in the know, to let you know what's going on in society, in this world. I was reading this article a couple weeks ago, and I love this statement. I think it speaks to our students, but it also speaks to us as adults. Vody Bachman made this statement. He said, do not blame Caesar. Do not blame Caesar when the children who sit under Caesar turn out like Romans. Don't blame Caesar when the children who sit under the authority of Caesar turn out like Romans. He was talking about school, but I referred it back to my life and our life. Whose authority am I sitting under? I guarantee you that most people in this room spend more time on Facebook and websites than you do in God's word. When we sit under the authority of other things, don't blame that thing when you turn out like it. You are who you are. And here's the Israelites. They're hanging around. They're going, oh my gosh, where's God? Where's God? We got to create a God. And they start to foster this feeling within each other. And it's become to be separate from God because, hey, we like negativity. We like it. So God says, hey guys, listen, I love you. And I got a promise for you. And I'm going to fulfill it. And I want to give you peace. And I want to give you rest. Verse two says, I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And on a surface, that sounds like a pretty good deal. I mean, you think, okay, God says, all right, listen, guys, I got a promise for you. And it's the promised land. And it's going to be peace. And it's fertile. It's wide open. You're going to have rest there. In fact, 
I'm going to send an angel there and they're going to wipe everybody out. So all you got to do is step right into the promised land. Sounds like a pretty good deal. When I first read it, it's like, take him up on it. Not a bad deal. I mean, that means I don't have to fight for anything. That means the angel is going to destroy all my enemies. That's not a bad deal. Let's do that. But what was their response? Their response is pretty, pretty interesting. Their response was the opposite of what I would thought it would be. They looked at the inhabitants of that and they thought, man, yeah, they're pretty formidable. But gosh, I don't, I don't, something's missing. I mean, that'd be great if the angel wiped out everything, but something's missing. I, I think we need to look at who is in the land. So it lists all these Canaanites, Hivites, mosquito bites, all the, all the ites and, that you can think of. The, the crazy thing about this is that the land is occupied by a group of a family members and the patriarch is Canaan, hence the name land of Canaan. And in Genesis chapter nine, verse 20 through 25, it says this. I wanted to read this to you because I don't want you to think I just made up this guy's name. It says, Noah, a man of the soil. We know about Noah. He proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and he laid uncovered in his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and towed his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders and they walked in backwards and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their naked father. When Noah woke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done, he said, curse be Canaan. The lowest of slaves, he will be, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Think about this for a second. Here's this land, the promised land, full of the Canaanites and all the other relatives of Canaan, who was the grandson of Noah. When you think about it, that kind of just blows my mind because here is Ham, Canaan's dad who experienced the wickedness of this world, but God's favor in saving him. That God created a, a boat through Noah and he is able to get on the boat and see the destruction of this world because of the evil in it. But one generation later, we have the land of Canaan. What happened? I mean, how do we go from being rescued to now having a land full of people who are idol, uh, worship, idol worshipers, pagan religion. Um, the, the Hivites, they would, they would sacrifice children into the fire. All this stuff was just evil things. How did we get one generation away or two generations away to pure evil? I appreciate Jeremy this morning leading um, opportunities in prayer because I feel like we have dropped the ball as moms and dads, as grandparents, as aunts, uncles, as friends, we have dropped the ball. I don't remember what the year was. Some of y'all probably have seen it. It was on the news a couple weeks ago. But they already have a date, a year in mind, that there's a projection of when Christianity in the United States will be a minority. Y'all might have seen that. It's a couple weeks ago that came out. We're just a generation away 
We're a generation away. Parents in this room, I'm just kind of curious. How often do you pray for your kids? How often do you talk about the Lord to your kids? Because if they're not gonna get it at home, I promise you they're gonna get it here, but we're only with them for an hour, if that. So who's discipling them? Don't blame Caesar. When your kids sin under Caesar's authority, that they turn out like Romans. That's your job. That's my job. And here we are seeing Ham, his son, being a father of this land that's full of pagans, just a generation away. It's amazing for me to think about that. Verse three, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are stiff-necked people and I might destroy you along the way. The stiff-necked, it's an agricultural term. It refers to an ox that's hooked up to a wagon or, or something that's being pulled or being used. And the shepherd or, or the, the, the person that's manning the ox would have an ox goad. An ox goad was, they say it's a stick about six to seven feet and had a sharp point on the end. And they would come up to the ox and if they wanted the ox to turn left, they would take the, the ox goad and they would poke his left heel or they'd poke his left side of his neck and the ox would turn left. If they wanted it to turn right, you would take the stick, ox goad, and he'd poke the right side of the heel or the, the neck. And if the ox didn't, didn't uh, respond, it was considered a stiff-necked ox. Basically, it was good for nothing because it wasn't doing what it was created to do. And I look at our society and I look at me as a person and there's many times in my life I am just quite simply stiff-necked. That God can't change my mind, God can't change my opinion, that I have the right way to do it and the only way to do it. I'm a stiff-necked person. You see, those who have the opportunity to know God and choose to go after what the world teaches, I wanna break break some news to you. You're stiff-necked. If God teaches you or tells you to do something and you decide to do it your own way, I want to be honest with you, you're stiff-necked. God's looking at you and going, there's not much I can do with you. I mean, you're just a stiff-necked people. You're so stubborn in your ways. You're argumentative. You're hard to communicate with. You're hard to impact. You're hard to influence. You're just stiff-necked people. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 I love this passage. It says, so as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not hearken your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. When your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years, they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declare an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. They shall never enter my rest. Brother and sister, let me ask you something. Do you feel frustrated in your life with Christ? Do you you feel like, uh, I don't really feel him, I don't really sense him, I don't really sense he's doing anything, I don't really feel his presence 
Let me me ask you this. When's the last time you were obedient to him? When's the last time you were obedient? Because it seems like obedience, with obedience comes rest. That when we're obedient to him, that's when we find true rest. Here's three different plans. I think God's plan is... is, um, a plan of movement that I feel like God looks at us and goes, says, baby, I love you. I love you too much to let you stay where you are. I want you to move. I want you to develop. So I think there's, there's God's desired plan and it's this. He wants to move us from confinement to freedom. God's desire is that he wants to move you from being, a, being stuck in a bondage. He wants to set you free. That's a promise of God. If you're sitting in bondage, that's not where he wants you to be. He wants you to have freedom. He wants to move you from oppression to blessings. He wants to move you from having a state that, man, oh, woe is me and what is going on and everything's crashing. No, he wants to move you from that to a life of blessings. He wants to move you from slavery rest. So let me ask you, are you stiff-necked? Are you feeling some rest? Are you feeling some freedom? Are you feeling some blessings? If the answer is no, I would say you're probably stiff-necked. Probably stiff-necked. D.L. Moody has this quote, says, let God have your life. He can do more with it than you can. If you wanna get out of the rut of being stiff-necked, here's, a, here's an example, Here, here's a suggestion. Find something to be obedient in. There is something in your life that's just gnawing at you, that's telling you, you should do this. You should do this. You should do this. Maybe this morning, maybe that message was, I needed to stand. That's an act of obedience. The Lord can do more for your life than what you can. Tony Evans says it this way, God will meet you where you are in order to take you where he wants you to go. There's an opportunity for you to be something that God wants you to be. But if you wanna continue being stiff-necked, this is what you're gonna experience. You're gonna experience oppression, slavery, and bondage. I don't want that for you. And I'm just a brother. Can you imagine our heavenly father looking at you and going, baby, I just love you. I love you and I wanna bless you and I want you to walk in the freedom and I want you to walk in the blessings. But man, it really starts with your obedience. Going back to Exodus chapter 33, verse four, it says, when the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on the ornaments. Verse five, for the Lord has said to Moses, tell the Israelites you are stiff-necked people. And if I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments so that I can decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Instead of rejoicing that God was gonna deliver them into the promised land and wipe out all the people, their response was, I am heartbroken because God's not going with us. Quite honestly, for many years of my life, 
I lived a life that said, I just want parts of God. I want parts of him. You may be sitting in this room going, okay, I want eternal life, but he better not butt into my life today. I mean, I want some of the perks, but man, he just has no authority in making decisions for me. Many of you in the room may be the way I was. For many years, I thought, okay, God, I love you. I care for you, but I wanna do what I wanna do. I don't want you butting into my life. And we have the Israelites going, God, yeah, you're gonna do some amazing things. You're gonna bless us. But their heart was, I am just heartbroken. I'm mourning. Why? Because God is not in their presence. God is not in their presence. How do you view sin? Do you view sin as an offense on yourself? Like, I can't believe that I did what I did. I'm so ashamed that I did what I did. I can't believe that I keep committing this same thing over and over. Or is your view of sin as I'm heartbroken that I've disappointed my heavenly father, that I've sinned against him? Is your view of sin an offense against you or is it offense against the Holy Father? Because if we view our sin as an offense against the Holy Father, then we're gonna have true sorrow. We're gonna truly mourn because we have broken his heart. I believe this to be true. That true sorrow over sin will lead to true repentance that we have true sorrow over the sin, we're gonna have true repentance. That I'm just heartbroken by it because I have disappointed and I've hurt my heavenly father and I'm sorrowful over it. And it leads to true repentance. True repentance will lead to true action. True repentance will lead to true action. This is what I mean. Here's the Israelites, they're mourning, they're heartbroken. And God says, listen, I appreciate you mourning, but something's gonna change and you're gonna change the way you look. I don't want you to put on any ornaments. There's gonna be a change. We're not gonna celebrate. We're gonna go into a time of mourning because sin is that offensive. Do we look at sin as offensive? Do we enter into a time of mourning? Have we repented of our sins? Some of you are struggling with the same sin that you've been struggling with for decades. You might've got up Monday and you thought, okay, this is it. By Monday afternoon, you're committing the same sin. By Tuesday night, you're doing the same sin. What I wanna ask you is, is, are you sorrowful over it? Does it heartbreak you that you're hurting the Lord, that you had offense against him? Then I would ask you this, does that repentance come with action? You know, if I'm an alcoholic, the last place I need to hang out is out in is a bar. If I struggle with pornography, the last thing I need to be doing is finding opportunities for me to be alone. If I struggle with gossip, the last thing I need to do is be around somebody who loves to gossip because true repentance has to lead to true action. Students, if you, if you get um, frustrated being around people, I, I would encourage you, Change friend groups. Make it an action. If you truly want to make a change, it comes with true action. 
See, we have two different examples here. Both guys experienced sorrow of their sin. We got Peter, who denied Christ. He felt sorrow in his heart. We got Judas, who sold Jesus, had sorrow in his heart. Sorrow doesn't lead always to repentance. Sometimes sorrow leads to guilt, and then guilt leads to death. Peter, I'm so sorry. I can't believe that I did that. And it breaks my heart that I broke Jesus' heart. It just hurts me. I'm so sorrowful. But yet he was repentant. And God said, I can use that. Judas, I'm so sorry that I did that. I did the wrong thing. And it breaks my heart that I did it. And then I'm so guilty that I commit suicide. True repentance comes with action. Don't always lean upon just sorry. If you feel sorry for it, that doesn't do anything until it comes with repentance. Like I said, I'm the youngest of five and we would always do stuff and we would always mess with each other and we would always hurt each other. My parents would always say, tell your brother that you're sorry. Do y'all do that as a parent? I didn't mean it. Like I would say, sorry. And then as soon as my parents would leave, I would hit them or punch them or throw something at them. I wasn't sorry. I wasn't sorrowful. So if you're struggling with something continuously, I want to ask you, are you sorry? I'm sorry. No, are you deeply hurt? Are you sorrowful over it? Look at verse seven. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent meeting outside the camp. And whoever Moses, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances of their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance. And while the Lord spoke with Moses, whenever the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshiped, each at the entrance of their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to the friend. And then Moses would return to camp, but his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent, which is pretty interesting because it seems like God is going, I got a plan for you, Joshua. I need to have some time with you. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember, this nation is your people. The Lord said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up there. It's a pretty interesting conversation that Moses is having with the Lord. It seems like Moses is very intimate with God that they're having these face-to-face conversations. Later on, we'll find out that it wasn't physically face-to-face. It just meant that they had an open relationship, that they could talk to each other freely. They had this conversation, and they're talking, and Moses is, is talking to the Lord, and he says, God, listen, I don't want the promised land. I don't want to go, even though it sounds great and all the blessings. I'd rather live in bondage and be in your presence than have the beauty of everything and live without you. That was his heartbeat. And when God saw his heart, he goes, man, that just blesses my heart. I have favor with you because you want to have a relationship with me. 
You want to get to know me. You want to have a relationship. We want eternal life. We want the perks. We want the benefits. But how much more do you want of God? Do you want to know him intimately? Do you want to have favor with him? Verse 16. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Christian, let me ask you something. How would you respond to that question? What distinguishes you from all the other people in the world? Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't make you influencer, being an influencer. It doesn't make you um, salt of this world. It's only when we take the truths of God's word and we put it into our life and we walk it out that we become what God intended us to be. What distinguishes you between everybody else? What is that distinguishing factor? You see, as a Christian, your role is to be a Christ follower. That's your role. Meaning Christ, wherever you go, I'm gonna be right there with you. Christ, whatever you're teaching, I wanna apply it to my life. Christ, however you want me to respond, that's how I'm gonna respond. Christ, whatever decision you want me to make, that's the decision I'm gonna make. That's a Christ follower. A couple weeks ago, um, I was talking to a guy that was hiring some people and he makes this statement and it's sad that he made this statement. He said, I'm a Christian. And he said, when I look for people to hire, he said, I hate to say this, but I don't always want to hire a Christian because they're lazy. They don't want to work hard. They want something for nothing. Isn't that crazy? That we as a Christ follower should be the hardest working people on the face of the earth. The people that have the biggest joy, the biggest happiness should be us. But here's a guy that says, I don't want to even want to associate with them. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, I will do this very thing that you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you and I'll proclaim my name, the Lord in your presence. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. No one may see my face and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on the rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I'll remove my hand and you'll see my back, but my face may not be seen. It's pretty amazing. When I look at this relationship, unique relationship that Moses has with a God, there, there's a, a Chinese word. It's called guanxi. And guanxi means a level of influence. So if the president of the United States walked in, he has a level of influence much higher than I have. He has a higher guanxi than I do. It seems like Moses has a high guanxi with God. Now you read it, you think, okay, is Moses arguing with the God? Is he like 
I'm not going to go if you don't send it, go with us. And, you know, now that you're going with us, I got another request and I want you to do this and I want you to show me this. Or is it just simply that Moses had favor and he had boldness to ask the Lord some things? I am guilty of being so meek in my prayers that I don't want to offend God. So I just go, God, would you do this? God, can you do this? There's not many times in my life that I have been very bold and say, God, this is what I'm asking. Would you do it? Something big, something bold. But here's Moses coming to God and he says, listen, God, it's not enough. I want something bigger. I want something bolder. I want you to show me your glory. I want you to show it to me. That's bold. After having a face-to-face conversation, like brothers, having this interaction with God and saying to God, basically, that was great, but I want more. I want more of you. I want, I, want, I want to know you more. I want to know you more intimate. Sitting in the tent with you is great, but I want more. I love the passion that Moses has. For, for many of us, our more is just simply coming to church and that's enough. I, I, I want to encourage myself to have the passion of Moses that says, I love church on Sunday morning but I can't wait till tomorrow morning when I can read my word and apply it to my life. I want more. I want more. God, would you please show me more? Show me more of you. I wanna know more of you. So let me ask you this as we come towards the end. If you find yourself dancing before an idol, what should your response be? Maybe your idol is your family. Maybe your idol is your job. Maybe your idol is your income. Maybe your idol is your possessions. If you find yourself dancing before this idol, what is your response? I would say this, number one, that God, realize this, God loves you. God loves you. There is nothing, and I told the band earlier this, I'm 51 years old and I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this that there is nothing that I can do to make God love me more today than he has my whole life. There's nothing I can do. I think growing up, I had this view of God, much like my dad. My dad was a Marine, fought in the Korean War. He raised us like little Marines. Um, You gotta obey, you gotta be tough. I remember playing um, football as a five-year-old. getting hit, falling down, crying. I remember my dad jerking me up and kicking me. Telling me, there's no crying in football. If you're gonna cry in football, you're not gonna play football. I remember times in my life where my dad would um, tell us to do something. If we didn't do it right the first time, he would hammer us. He would come down on us hard. So I had a view of God that said, God, I know you love me on this level, but man, I really want to get to this level. So for me to make up that difference, I must have to do things to earn your favor. Can I tell you something? I am still wrapping my mind around that. That God loves you. 
as much today as he did yesterday. He loves you the same that he always will. There's nothing that you can do to earn more love. So if you find yourself dancing in front of your idol, I don't want you to think that God hates you. No, he loves you. He loves you deeply. Second thing I think we need to do is experience true repentance. True repentance. Another thing is I want you to encourage you every morning, I want you to realize this, that his mercies are new every morning. Though I danced in front of the idol last night, this morning, the mercies are new. And finally, realize that you have an advocate that's fighting for you, and that's Jesus Christ. We're gonna do something a little different. We're gonna put up a couple of passages about prayer. I think for us, it is the most underused thing that we use. We we don't use prayer often. We'll pray for our meal. We may silently pray for something, but we don't really have a conversation with God. So as this passage comes up, I'm gonna encourage, um, I'm gonna be bold, I'm gonna ask you to do this. Men, husbands, Um, If you have a significant other, I'm talking to you right now. Look at the Ephesians passage up here. And I'm gonna encourage you to do something. I want you to have the boldness to stand beside your significant other, your wife, whatever it may be. I want you to stand beside her. If you feel comfortable, I want you to stand beside her. And I want you to pray this prayer over your wife. I don't think many of us do this. I don't think many of us pray for our spouse. And yet we leave our spouse hanging out there being discipled by Caesar because they're human. So I wanna encourage you, men, if you're bold enough to do this, to pray this over your spouse, to pray this over your significant other, wives, significant others, this is what I want you to do. I want you to keep your eyes open because I want you to see your husband, your significant other, loving you deep enough to know that they wanna pray for you. They wanna pray over you. So if you feel bold to do that, we're gonna, I'm gonna count it down for 30 seconds. I want you to stand and I want you to pray this prayer over your spouse. I pray that out of his glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Husbands, have a seat. Wives, if you feel so bold, I want you to stand beside your husband, your significant other. I want you to put your hand on him. I want you to pray the same prayer over them. If you feel so bold, I want you to stand and we're gonna pray this together. 
Husbands, I want you to keep your eyes open. I want you to see your wife praying over you. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hands through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that, his, that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. All right, wives, you can have a seat. I would dare to say there's probably many of you in this room, that was the first time that you've maybe prayed over your spouse. I encourage you to continue to do so. If you're a parent, grandparent, um, I want to encourage you to be bold. I want you to stand here in a second. I want you to pray over your kids. If you're a student, if your parents are with you, I want you to keep your eyes open because I want you to see the power of the parents standing and praying over you. I think it's a beautiful thing. It's Philippians chapter one, verses nine through 12. So parents, if you feel bold enough, I want you to stand and pray these words over your children. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness, righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Have a seat. So I want to give you a testimony of the power of prayer. And I'm still seeing it lived out. When my children were born, I didn't know what the heck to do. I, I knew I would love them, but I was scared that I would parent them like my dad parented me. I, I didn't want to be to them everything my dad was to me. And it scared me. So I made a promise and pledge and I pray this every day of my life for my children. Simple words. I have an alarm on my phone that goes off on their birth dates. It's my son, born August 8, 8.08 a.m. Alarm goes off. Another son born on December 11th, so 12 at 11, phone goes off, alarm goes off, I pray for my son. This is what I pray, that they would have a heart for the Lord, that they have a heart for his word, that they'd have a heart for people, they'd have a heart for ministry. I would pray for their girlfriends, that they would have girlfriends that love the Lord and want to honor their bodies to the Lord. I pray for their spouse, that their spouse would be a lady that loves the Lord deeply and only loves my children second. That a woman that loves her family but puts Christ first in everything. For the past year, our youngest son went off to college and 
I don't know if you've ever done that, sent a kid off to college. There's a lot of anxiety that goes off. You go, man, boy, he's going to go to college. I hope he gets around the right people. So this past year, I was praying for my, my son as he went off to be a freshman in college. God, would you please surround him with good godly kids that have a lighthearted mind that want to serve you and know you and grow in their faith? I, I got to see that answered prayer this weekend. My wife and I got to go visit our kids in college. We got to go see our son Brady at Charleston Southern. And how did God show off? I don't know if I had influence, but I'm sure I am thankful that God heard my prayer and God hears your prayer. Pray for your spouse. Pray for your kids. Pray for your grandkids. Pray for our church. Pray for our community. Do not let that weapon go dull. Sharpen it. Let's pray together. Father, we just love you. Um, Lord, I'm still amazed that you love somebody like me that's full of faults and insecurities and strife and history and pain. And I'm still learning, Lord, that there's nothing that I can do to earn more love. You've lavished it upon me. So God, I pray for our church that we can wrap our minds around that truth. That though we dance in front of our idols, it doesn't mean that you can't do anything with us. Father, there's maybe things in our life that we need need to repent. Lord, I just want to start with, God, break our heart for breaking yours. Bring sorrow. Make us mourn over the, the sin that we've committed. Give us the boldness to repent from it. Give us the diligence to change action. Father, I pray that you would find us obedient in following you. Father, I thank you that you've given us the opportunity to pray and speak with you. Lord, it seems like Moses had a lot of influence. And Lord, I think that your righteous people do as well. Father, we as followers of Christ, we are heirs to the kingdom. So give us the boldness, give us the courage to be bold, to ask for something big. Show us your glory. Show us your glory in our family. Show us your glory in our children. Show us your glory in our job, our failures, our mistakes, our shortcomings, our highs and our lows. Show us Jesus. Father, we thank you that you care for us, that you love us, that you desire to have a relationship with us. And I'm so thankful. Father, we just give you our best and we give you our worst. And I know that blesses your heart. It's your name we pray, amen.